So you're going to want a Bible this morning, and uh, if you don't have one in your hand, we would like to put one in your in your hand. So if you would let us know, we have some some folks walking around. We're going to be in Romans chapter 14, uh, picking back up in uh, in our our um, undivided or um, uh, our series back in the book of Romans. And uh, if you read ahead, uh, you you know that we're entering back into what is Paul's uh, recurring theme on the back half of, of this book of Romans in relationships. And uh, some of you, for some of you, you're thinking, man, are we going to have to talk about relationships again? See, in, in Romans chapter 12, uh, he started this conversation and we've kind of bounced back and forth because we came back to Romans 12 with the Rooted series. But we ended the Rooted series with Paul's conversation about enemies and, and healthy relationships. Before that, even though this is after that, we were in Romans 13 and he talked about a different kind of relationship with, with authority and, uh, and government with that theme of, of submitting to authority. One of our favorite words in the world, submission. Uh, and now in chapter 14, this is gonna be even our more favorite theme. He's uh, in relationships, he's talking about dysfunctional relationships or in a disagreement in this chapter uh, between a, a, a special kind of people or, or a group of special uh, people in uh, that will relate to uh, in our lives. But this is what Paul does. If uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, and if you're not, this will be uh, this will be a lesson for you. You'll find that when Paul writes a letter, normally he starts out heavy on doctrine and and what we believe. And then uh, somewhere uh, in the middle of his books, whether they're long books like the book of Romans or shorter ones like the book of Ephesians, he'll switch from, uh, from our belief system, what we believe about God and what we believe about the world, from that doctrine stuff to the practical stuff. This, this kind of like, like the way we preach. We teach kind of at the front end and then we move to application. And Paul's application almost always lives out in relationship. So you'll find somewhere in there he starts talking about marriage and, and family and Christian relationships and talking about how we deal with our enemies and how, do we, how we deal with our bosses and all of those kinds of things. And you almost get the idea that Paul, this is amazing, uh, that Paul believes that if Sunday doesn't connect with Monday, if, if Sunday doesn't, doesn't step out into the key areas of our lives, then, then our souls at some point will disengage from God. That we're not just going to live in the sanctuary and in religiosity, sing our little songs, and then go out and it not translate. That what God says to us not translate into the areas of our lives that we need hope, that we need change, that we need resources. Because the truth is, if it doesn't, not only will we disengage, uh, but eventually, in this generation, has, has really stepped this out. Eventually, we're going to check out altogether. That what God wants 
is, is not just your songs. What God wants is not just our praise and for us to kind of live in the clouds of religion. But he wants, he wants his presence to step out into those areas of our lives uh, that where we need him the most. He wants to change, in this case, the way we relate to one another. And so as Paul steps that out in this chapter, the relationship that he's talking about, and I just, I, I, wanna, I wanna prepare you for this, that, that the relationship that he's dealing with or the conflict in relationship that he's dealing with is dysfunctional relationships. Now, stay with me here because this is gonna surprise you. Conflict in church. Hold your gasps because I know you can't imagine it. That, that good Christian people, that, that children of God who all sing the same songs and pray the same prayers and we would say have the same spirit, that at some point in their church life that they wouldn't, I know this is a shocker, that they wouldn't get along. Because Jesus said that we'll, the world will know that we're Christians by our, by our love. It's, that's, that's the ideal, right? That we're all going to get along and that, that there's going to be such, uh, such warmth and heat in our Christian relationships that uh, the rumor outside of the church is they love each other so much and that'll be the headline right that's what they're going to write about that's what the newscasters are going to talk about but the reality in our world today if you think back over even this past year the headlines have been about how one Christian group can't get along with another Christian group how one Christian leader uh, can't accept or have peace with another Christian leader. And that, that's, that's in the, the big church, we're in the leadership world. But the rumor in community, in our communities, is that one, one group can't get along with another group and one group couldn't get along with each other, so they had to form another group. This has happened so frequently that we've actually come up with a diagnosis, a, a name for a bad, dysfunctional, hard church experience. We call it church hurt. And when people now come into a new church, we assume that in, in their background and maybe their most recent background that they've experienced uh, the trauma of church hurt, that they need to recover from church hurt. And if I were to ask for a show of hands in, in this room today, and, and I, make a, 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 I make a joke on the front end, but your story probably includes some sort of religious trauma church hurt uh, that's no laughing matter and, and when we read this chapter you're going to find that Paul doesn't take it lightly either 
But the interesting thing about the way Paul enters into this very potentially hurtful situation is that if you've experienced church hurt and disappointment with what should have been an idealistic situation, that the reality is going back to Paul is that in the very beginning, people struggled getting along with other people. And even though Paul doesn't say this, he's long descended from the clouds of, of idealism because even if you, if you go back to Jesus and look around the Lord's table in a while, we'll take communion together. That if you were to go back to that first table, that there was potentially church hurt there, that the apostles, the disciples of Jesus were quarreling, they were fighting, they were scheming, they, they struggled to get along. That's the reality. That wherever two or more are gathered, there's going to be disagreement. <laughs> that if you put me in a room with one other person or ten other people, we're going to bump up against each other, rub up against each other, annoy each other, and have some struggle, some difficulty getting along. And the reality is most of us, you put us in a room or put us in a bed with somebody else. You put us in a sanctuary or put us in, uh, on a couch. That our struggle getting, getting along, we, we normally think that there's just one of two options. We either think that I, I have to fight for what I believe in, and that means fight against in, anyone that disagrees with me. It's fight, 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 fight. Because right is right, right? Or I, I have to live in some sort of a naive peace, love, and stupidity world. That those are the only two options for getting along or for dwelling with a group of people. But Paul in this chapter is going to unlock a completely different way, a new option for us to dwell with one another in a sanctuary or in a living room. And I believe that what he's going to do is going to change every relationship that we engage in. Are you ready for that? That's, this is where Amen. Thank you. <laughs> and you should feel a little nervous too. All right, let's pray. Father, as we, as we read your word, as we uh, cast our eyes on uh, these, uh, these holy ideas, would you open for us a new way of thinking? Would you unlock for us a new way of thinking? And would you do something with us in, in, this, in this chapter, in this word, uh, that would bring not just peace, uh, but perfection. And we believe that you can do just that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you would, join me in a reading of Romans chapter 14. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him or her 
but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that uh, he may eat anything while uh, the weak person eats only vegetables. I agree with that, by the way. Wholeheartedly. Let not the one who eats despise, listen to, listen to his language, how strong he is, despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you? Listen to Paul, how he wags his finger in your face. Who do you think you are to pass judgment on the servant of another? This is a key idea. Who do you think you are to pass judgment on a servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, while the other esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God while the other abstains. And abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God for none of us lives to themselves and none of us dies to ourselves. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. That's the point. We're God's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I Live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of his brother. That Jesus said, uh, that if you uh, cause any any of these little ones to stumble, what does he say? Uh, he'll tie a millstone around your neck. This beckons back to that. Let let rather us decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of our brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not, listen to his language, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So don't let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Don't let that be the headline. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whatever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual 
up building. Everybody take a breath. We're almost there. This is long. Just two more chapters. But this is good. Paul doesn't take it lightly. And as he walks into this situation, he's long-winded. He's long-winded because he takes this seriously. And as he unfolds this, he ends this way. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy. Listen to his word, destroy. Second time he said destroy. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Before he says destroy the one for whom Christ died, now he says destroy the work of God. This is serious. And everyone in here who has experienced trauma in the place that they had hoped would be safe reads that word destroys and has dreams that were dashed have hopes that turn to hurt so you know when he says destroy it's no, no laughing matter and it becomes very very personal Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another to stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that causes anything else that's important, that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself by what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned by what he eats because the eating is not from faith it's not from love it's not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith he says is sin so as we as we look if we were to look from the outside in on any any church where there's some division or any uh, relationship where there's conflict we would say Harshly, we would say, what is your problem? We want to define the problem. When you look at this, there's two groups of people who can't get along. And this is the first time in the book of Romans where he doesn't name those groups by ethnicity or by people group. So he doesn't say Jew or Gentile. He says weak and strong, which I think is hilarious. Because the so-called weak in this text are going to be sitting there listening to this letter. <laughs> Right? And he, he names it. He, he names them as weak. And later on in chapter 15, then he goes on and actually says that there's a strong. There's a strong and a weak in faith. But this is so, so much like Jesus. Do you remember when, when uh, the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, he's sitting at the table with folks and they're knocking back some beers? And they say, why, why do you sit with drunkards? Why are you with the tax collectors? And, and the sinners, and Jesus, I, I imagine that he kind of stood up and he motioned at the table where he's eating, where his buddies are sitting. And he says, isn't it the sick who need the physician, who need the doctor? And man, I, if I would not have been at that table and Jesus looks at me and like names the fact that, that I've got dysfunction and I have issues in my life. But you can imagine the look on their faces. Is he talking about me? 
And Paul's sitting at the table with these guys, or he's the letters being read to them, and he names that they're weak. I love that the that the word of God is honest. Because this isn't peace, love, and stupidity. That the, there's a sense in which God wants us to know that we can be we can be wrong and right at the same time. It's a critical aspect of grace. And the latter part of this text really spells that out. You can be wrong and right at the same time because that's what grace is. Grace makes room for our struggle. Grace makes room for our weakness. Grace makes room for us to be wrong, but we find also in this text that you can be right and wrong at the same time as well. It's mind-blowing. That you, you, can be, you, can, you can be not there yet and God names you as holy. And intellectually, doctrinally, in your belief system, in the way you look at, at the world, you can be all right further along and God looks at you and says, you're just, you're, you're not there in faith and you're not there in love and name you as wrong. So what do they think that their problem is? They, they, they think the issue is food, right? They, they, they think the issue is, uh, is days and whether or not one keeps or not that day. So one, one has uh, the freedom to mow their lawn on Sunday morning and the other is offended by the dude out in his shorts and some of you are more offensive mowing your lawn in your shorts than others. Like the, the idea that God uh, wants me to keep all of these laws and the other person feels released from keeping those laws. They think it's about days and food. But if you look deeper, they're really afraid of what the other is taking from them. So one is afraid that, that if uh, they eat, they'll lose their confidence before God. And the other is afraid that they'll lose their freedom. Like they're they're fun and that insecurity is key as we talked about last week uh, when when Brian was preaching the idea of a scarcity mentality because we're insecure about the thing that we don't feel like we have enough of and that insecurity that fear of loss is always at the root of conflict because when I'm afraid that you're going to take something from me, I'm going to fight you to keep hold of it. Insecurity, scarcity is at the heart because both feel like there's not enough. There's not enough grace to cover me if I make a mistake. There's not enough joy to cover me if I give up some of my freedom. There's not enough. 
And that changes the way we respond to one another in any situation. So I don't look like it right now, uh, but I used to love to climb. When I was a kid, I climbed trees, and then uh, when I moved overseas, I climbed trees all the time. You, you could, have, if you wondered where I was as a child, I'm in a tree, at the top of a tree. And so when I moved overseas, uh, the first time uh, I, I would see guys in in my little city that I lived walking around with climbing gear, and I, I started to ask, I, said, what, I don't see any mountains nearby, so what are you doing with the climbing gear? And we found out that on the backside of uh, the castle wall, there was a castle in the center of the city, uh, on the backside of the castle wall, uh, there was, they had created a, a climbing uh, area. And so the first time I went out, I, I went through this little forest and found guys uh, popping up the side of this wall, and I was hooked uh, from, from there. When I moved back to the States, I'd climbed in, in some indoor gyms and, uh, and, and on the back of the castle wall a lot, but I really wanted to go climb uh, an, actual, an actual mountain. And I had a friend who said, hey, my dad... Um, actually, he climbs and would like to take us out uh, on, on a, a, my first, what would be my first lead climb. And so we, we geared up. We spent the night with, uh, with this friend's dad, um, brought my, my shoes and harness and all of that stuff. Got up in the morning, and he says, hey, you want to make sure this is going to be an all-day thing. You want to make sure uh, that you bring enough food. We rolled our eyes. We're fit through a few power bars in the back of our bag but we kept looking over at, at our our friend my friend's dad and he's got this huge bag and we're thinking we're going to be hiking it up this the the side of this mountain uh how is he going to make it with this huge bag and he had these cargo pants that were stuffed full like huge pillows he guy can barely walk so we set out on on the hike that's leading to the climb and i'm reaching in my my little bitty backpack and pulling out you know a power bar here and there and uh an hour and a half two in we're all sitting around and uh, my bag's on the ground, and a friend leans over, and he starts to grab one of my power bars. By this, by this point, I'm feeling it. I'm, I'm thinking, I don't, I realize, and I think we all realized, I don't think I brought enough food. <laughs> and so I popped his hand. I'm like, get your hands off that. That's my power bar. <laughs> Scare mentality. And so we, we set out again, take another rest, and you can see guys, they, they have their power bars, and we're holding them. We're like, this is not going to be enough, but this is all I've got. And we're starting to bicker. We're feeling hungry. We're agitated. We get to the next resting point, and uh, my friend's dad sets his bag down, and he's kind of snickering at us because we're, we're feeling it, man, low sugar, the whole thing. And he pops his bag over and outpours a feast of power bars. And then he opens his cargo pants and starts pulling peanuts, the best snacks in the world. And we're like, for the past three hours, we've been looking at each other like, which one of you guys am I going to eat if this gets, if this gets bad? We're, this is funny. But all of a sudden, there's enough for everybody. 
And, and as I was thinking back on this, and I remember thinking then, if I had have known what was in his bag, that would have changed everything. And from that point on, that there was enough changed everything. And that's what Paul does in this chapter. He wants us to know some things. He wants them first, but he wants you to know some things that once you know will change the way you relate and respond to everyone. In this room, in your bedroom, in your boardroom, that if you know some things in, in, the, in the worst possible situation, you'll respond out of plenty rather than scarcity. The first thing that he wants you to know is something about God. When you go back and read this, I want you to, I want you to find this picture of God that, that he has for you. That God is a God of plenty. But if you believe that God is religiously, that God is holding out on you, that there's not enough freedom, that there's not enough grace, that there's not enough acceptance, then your response is going to be out of scarcity. Your response uh, to the people around you is always going to be out of agitation rather than acceptance. He wants you to know that God is not holding out on you. You think back to, to Jesus um, in his parables. He talked about this a lot in relationship. Uh, the, 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 the parable of the, the stingy servant it was uh, it always traced back all of his parables traced back to what they believed about the master what they believe about God and if you believe that God is out to get you if you believe that God is greedy that God is unforgiving that God is harsh then that internal belief system is always going to affect the way we respond to other people but it's not just what we believe, but what we receive. There's another parable that Jesus talks about the, the, the uh, unforgiving servant. And in, the, in that story about the unforgiving servant, the master actually, the, this servant has this huge debt. And the, the master, when he comes for him, says, I know that you don't have enough to pay your debt, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna forgive it for you. That, that servant leaves and goes and finds someone who owes him money and then throws them in jail because they can't pay, which is not just, that's kind of a doofus move. Because once they're in jail, they're not going to be able to pay anyway, right? So this guy's not the sharpest tool in the shed, which defines me in every conflict that I engage in. I'm just not really thinking ahead on how this is going to affect me. And my wife's going to be in second service and she'll say, that is it. You were not thinking ahead. But it's not just what you believe, but if you receive it, because this guy had, had been forgiven, but still hadn't processed that in order, uh, in order to give it away. Hadn't received it. You can't give what you haven't received. You can't give what you don't know. And if you don't, if you don't know that your God is a God of abundant grace, that's gonna affect the way you respond to other people when you disagree. But if you haven't received it, 
Like you may know that, but I, I, I have so many conversations with, with people who are like, I know, I just can't accept it. I just can't. But Paul says you have to, not just for you, but, but until you receive the abundant grace of God, that God who makes room for you to be wrong, and see it. He makes, he makes, there's a wide berth for your mistakes, for your wrongness, for your sins. In the field of grace, God accounts for that. And I know some of you are like, wait a minute, uh, can we have a, a dash and then go on? But he doesn't go on at the end of this chapter. I mean, the way he talks about these, about these people, they are wrong. But God makes them right. And until you receive that, you will not, you cannot give that to your children when they're wrong. And, and ladies, you, you won't be able to give that to your husband when he's wrong a lot and for one another we'll always be guarded in our relationships with one another because of how we're afraid we'll treat one another because there's just not enough I, I barely have enough but what if God were to tip over his bag if we were to see <laughs> I don't have to be afraid of you. There's plenty. The God of abundance, but the, the other key point here, and I, I love the way Paul said, who do you think you are? And this really is the main, the, the, the main change in our understanding, our knowledge of God in this. Who do you think you are? To judge the servant of another? Oh, wait a minute see when I'm trying to be God I'm, I'm completely unequipped for that role and when I'm unequipped for a, a role I always act out of anxiety and you've, you've been there in, in your workplace or you've sat in a class where there was a teacher that you know did not know what they were talking about and out of a place of anxiety we're always more harsh and always more manipulative but God releases you from that when he says who are you to judge the servant of another he releases you from the redemptive responsibility of other people because that's not your job it's not it's not your job to save them and if he releases you from that responsibility, he releases you to be what he called you to be. If it's not to save, uh, then it is to love. If I'm not called to make you into something, then I'm called to be with you as he will say as a brother. 
He frees me. Um, the, I, I, I have too many stories um, that, that relate to dads in the room. Um, as a, a parent of young children, as a father of young children, um, there were so many times out on the playground or at McDonald's that I would have my kids with me and uh, a mom would come into the scene and it was always a mom and would would try to parent my kid would, would start shouting hey you and I would hear it as I'm over in a conversation and mind you my kid was on top of the jungle gym or on top of the swing set either about to jump off and break their legs or, or pee off on other on other kids but the sting of a, of someone else parenting my child that indictment <laughs> excuse me i am <laughs> his father <laughs> and not a very good one but the point is it's also offensive when you try to parent god's kids does that make sense but for us to say god is in control and that releases me from and that releases me to but it also Paul also wants us to know something about ourselves he wants you to know you if, if God's calling you to be you not him if he's calling you to be you then I need to know who I am and for those of you who've been through unique you know kind of where this is going to go for us to really live into our identity before we ever get to words and those things and if you haven't been through unique we're starting on march 1st you can go to our website and you can sign up and i'm not just saying that because i i lead the unique process uh, a lot of times here at grace but this is this is tr truly life-changing for you to discover god's calling but for those of you who've been through that can i hear amen Ooh. i'll start quizzing you on your two words but you know if you've been a part of that process that the first thing you do the, the, the first thing that you do in coming to the place of your identity is you process your story. Your highs and your lows. The, the change moments in your life. And the lows are just as important as the highs. We'd say that uh, I've heard it said that the best guides are the ones who failed their way to the top. And that they, they were aware of their points of struggle, of, their, uh, of the times that they hadn't arrived yet. I'll, I'll say it this way. Um, the, the, uh, the natural leader uh, scares me to death and they annoy me too. That person that just somehow, just they were just gifted and they didn't have to work through it. Uh, because they don't know how to come alongside the person who struggled. And listen to this. That guide, when I'm not there yet, understands where I am. Another phrase that we, that we use in Unique is, you are most equipped to lead the person that you used to be. Process that statement. You're most equipped to lead the person that you used to be but you have to know who that person was and I was going to think back to that to that point uh, when you weren't there yet when you were wrong some of you are going to have to think really hard 
Think about that point when you, you were in failure. What did you most need? You needed somebody to get in your face, didn't you? That you had that person. You needed somebody to tell you that you were wrong. You probably had that person. You needed somebody to make you feel ashamed. And you probably had that person. But the gift of this is that if you process that, you can be to them what you most needed then. You can be to them the gift of your struggle is that you get to be to your husband or your wife or your child or someone in this room what you so badly needed someone to be to you. That's your calling. That's compassion. That's empathy. And that's a game changer. For, you to be, for God to release you to be you, that's a game changer in the midst of conflict. For you to be, if you're not God, you get to be you. The third thing that he wants you to know is something about one another. It's, it's really interesting in the way this, uh, this chapter, Paul's argument, organizes because at the beginning of the chapter, he doesn't name the relationship as he's talking about the problem and this is the way we deal with problems. That It's in a non-relational. We talked about this last week with that book that you need to read, Leadership and Self-Deception. That, that, sh- that should be sometime this year. Beautiful read. It's great story and life-changing for all relationships but that idea that when we're in the midst of conflict we see people as obstacles or as vehicles as commodities or irrelevancies and Paul changes that but he does it so cleverly in this chapter when he's talking about the problem this is the way we process it oh you're weak oh you're taking ah that scarcity mentality but then all of a sudden when he starts talking about the solution in the midst of the weakness, you're causing, and look at what he does, your brother to stumble. You're grieving your brother. Who you are to me changes how I respond to you when you annoy me, when you hurt me who you are to me. And you know this because if you're sitting at lunch today and a stranger comes by your table and takes a fry off of your plate, you're going to pop their hand. But if your kid reaches across the table and takes a fry, depending on which kid, (laughs) who you are to me changes how I respond when you take something from me. when you hurt me when you're not there yet and if that doesn't connect with you every one of us at some point in our lives have taken a friend or a fiance home for the first time for the holidays and on the way we warn them about our weird uncle who's going to be listening to this we, we warn them, but we make excuses 
and concessions for our people. And we laugh. It's okay. He's weird. Like when he unbuckles the, and it's, but he's adorable and we love him. And Paul wants to convince you that we are, I wish we had somebody strumming in the back saying we are family. We are one another's people. Because who you are to me changes how I respond to you in the pit in the worst time right so what makes us family just real quick is is, I don't think Paul's just talking metaphorically as family but in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we read another part of that chapter in our worship earlier. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he says, For by one Spirit we were baptized into the body. You know, I didn't get to choose my sisters. And sometimes in the backseat of the car when she's walloping me, and I think she is going to listen to this, I thought, I wish I had a choice on which kind of crazy I was going to be riding with. But that's part of what makes us family. You don't get to choose who your people are. And for them, back in the book of Romans, they didn't have 17 churches that if they didn't like this one, they could go choose a different family and a different family. And I don't mean any shame in that, but they didn't have that choice. And at times they felt stuck in that situation, but the other way of looking at it is the same way as our family. I didn't get to choose my uncle. I didn't get to choose my siblings. And that person that you're at conflict with is family, not because you chose them, but because you were immersed into this by, he says, the Spirit. But secondly, in in John 3, we we talk about the new birth, and it's not allegorical. He's, He's not, once again, using a metaphor for the new birth. What makes us family is we were birthed from the same spiritual womb. And I know that's a weird way of thinking about God. But we were birthed out of the same spiritual womb. And we have the same father. And when we say sons and daughters of God in our services, that makes you and me brothers sons of the same God born into the same family and it just so happens that that God that dad that you and I share his bag is full of good gifts what makes us family we have a good father who lavishes us with love and that changes everything that if I could know him not the wrong about you but if I could know him then I would be released to receive that lavishness and that love over me in my worst moment. And if I would receive it then, I could give it to you now. 
if I saw you as family. And that, as we're, as we're moving to our conclusion, that's for the band. That is why we take communion. We, we celebrate our Father and the Son and the sacrifice. But the reason why we take communion in this room is that we share a table with people who annoy us. Right? We stand in the same line with people that we don't know but are brothers and sisters. We share the same bread and cup with people that have hurt us. But they're not just people. They are, we say, sons and daughters of God. So in, in a moment, I want you to process this as you, as you line up and take communion. And normally, we, we take it and either are private to ourselves. I want to encourage you here. Or we, we gather our family or our spouse and we, and we take it. I really want to say grab somebody who annoys you, but uh, that's too explicit. <laughs> grab the weakest person that you know and everybody's going everybody's gonna to be playing freeze tag. <laughs> running. I'm not weak. Oh, but you are. And I am too. But his bag is full. And that makes room for us to be family at the table. Really, though, as you, as you take communion, I want to encourage you, uh, grab somebody. Not grab them, but reach out to someone. And look into their eyes and say, we are family. And that changes everything. If you join me on your feet. We want to declare out loud, God, that you are a good God and your bag is full. <laughs> Let us see the goodies flow out and will you change the, our posture with one another to be people of grace and presence and love and compassion. Would you miraculously open our eyes to the truth that we are family. And would you change because of that the way we interact with one another? We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.